It's Palm Sunday. Good Friday's coming. We call it Good Friday because His wounds have indeed paid our ransom. And we're going to celebrate that in a service of shadows on Sunday evening beginning at 7 o'clock. Did I get those details right, Pastor? Awesome. So 7 o'clock Sunday, we'll also have a service available for the kids. So if you want to join us, we welcome you. Uh, we're also uh, endeavoring to be a praying church. We have something called Cottage Prayer Meetings. Uh, that might be a bit of an antiquated name for you. Call it home groups. People that get together in homes and pray. Uh, there's a schedule there in your bulletin. We invite you. We welcome you to participate in any or all of those that make sense for you and your schedule. I know we live busy lives, don't we? We've got ball games and all sorts of things. So we also have some here at the church. Some on Sunday evenings and some on Wednesday evenings. So if you can't make it during the week, uh, there's a place that you can pray together in a small group. And we're trying to pray kingdom-oriented prayers, right? Uh, it's okay to pray for the sick. Indeed, we're commanded to do so. It's good to pray for the sick. But we are also commanded to, to pray prayers that acknowledge that Jesus is king, which is the thesis of this morning's sermon in, from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 and 40. And if Jesus is king, and if he has all authority, and if he's on the throne, and he's ruling and he's reigning through his church then that ought to change how we view things like prayer and obedience and service and evangelism. It ought to change our expectancy for what we would see happen if together by faith we worship and welcome our King. So I want to encourage you, North Roanoke, we want to, we want to be a praying church, we want to be a sharing church and a serving church, and we want to do that because of the truth of Palm Sunday. We're about ready to, allude, to read chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, beginning in verse 28. And what you'll find there is Luke doesn't do what the other Gospels do. In particular, the Gospel of John, which shows us what the disciples got wrong. What did the, what did the disciples get wrong? They did not understand that Jesus was going to come and establish His kingdom by going to a cross. They did not understand that it would involve the resurrection. But what did the disciples get right in Luke chapter 19? We're about ready to find out this is what they got right. Jesus is indeed the king. He is the Messiah who's promised in the Old Testament. And if that's true, though the disciples did not understand the way that he would triumph would be through the cross, now that we know that's the way that he triumphed, we too can take up our cross, take the low place for one another, not assert our own prerogatives, but stoop down and take the low place for others as Christ has done for us, and we can trust that his kingdom is on the advance to the ends of the earth. We haven't even gotten to the text yet, and I'm excited. I hope you are as well. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Well, the question is, what things has he said? In verses 11 through 27, Jesus tells a parable about those who don't understand that when the king comes, even though you don't see his kingdom in its physical manifestation, his kingdom has nevertheless come. And those who reject the idea that the, king, the kingdom has come because the king has come are actually enemies of Christ. They, don't look, they look around and they say, well, the world doesn't look different. There's still evil in the world. There's still atrocities in the world. I still have bad days and therefore, Jesus, you must not be on the throne. Jesus says those who think like that are actually his enemies and they will face a severe judgment. Verse 29. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you there. As you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we want to be a church that welcomes you as king so that the stones can remain silent. We want to be a church that declares that your kingdom knows no end, that your kingdom extends to the ends of the earth, and that you are using us in the process of bringing that great news to those who do not yet know it. Help us this day to welcome you as our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Luke's gospel, early in chapter 19, there's a little short guy. You remember his name, the short guy in scripture? Zacchaeus. And a little short guy named Zacchaeus is a tax collector for Caesar. He's a, he's a sellout, the people of God think. And, and he's collecting taxes and he's cheating people on their taxes. And the Son of Man is coming to town. And do you remember the song? Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Yeah, so he climbs a tree and, and the master, as he comes by, says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to go to your house today. And the Lord goes to Zacchaeus' house and he brings a tax-collecting, thieving, conniving Zacchaeus into the kingdom of God. He rescues him. And here's what happens when a tax collector gets saved. People go, the kingdom's got to be coming. Because if somebody can collect taxes for Caesar and the king can grant Zacchaeus salvation, then the kingdom has to be coming. And Jesus, you know what he says? You're exactly right. It's not going to appear physically right now, but the kingdom is coming and it's coming in the presence of our king. The kingdom is now at hand. And though it does not initially come by way of observation, Jesus tells us in verse 21 of chapter 17... The kingdom has come, and it's come through a cross, and it's key, the kingdom is extended through the victory Christ has won on the cross as it is reenacted over and over again in our lives as we take up our cross and follow Him. So Luke is showing us not what the disciples mess up. Yes, they misunderstand the resurrection. They figure it out soon enough. But what they get right is that Jesus is the all-victorious conquering king. And here's the irony this morning for us, church. His obedient march to a rugged cross is actually the proof of his heavenly coronation. We don't have to wait until he returns to know that Jesus is king. He went to the cross just as it was prophesied that he would do, and he buried death. He 
killed death with his death. He killed self-righteousness with his death. Sunday, Palm Sunday, is the reminder that despite what our eyes may tell us and our hearts often feel, Jesus is actually now seated on the throne. He is now reigning and ruling and extending his kingdom through the people of God, North Roanoke Baptist Church. Do you know you're, you're in the kingdom? If you've trusted Christ, you've been born anew into the heavenlies, that you're a citizen of an altogether different kingdom, and that gives you an entirely new perspective on life and what life is all about. So this morning, I want to encourage you to step into this text. I want to step into this text together, and I want you to see with me why Luke has written this passage. He's writing this passage to prove that Jesus is the conquering king promised in the Old Testament, and he's doing it to urge us to do something. Well, who cares? Why does Luke bother to prove that Jesus is the king that he said he was? Because he wants us to live for our king. Not for the kingdoms of this earth that are going to pass away. He wants us to live as citizens of the kingdom. So for us to welcome Jesus as the king that he is, there's three things I believe we see in this text that we have to do. First, we must recognize Jesus is that conquering king promised in the Old Testament. Second, we must obey that conquering king completely. And third, we must worship him heartily. First, we must recognize Jesus is the conquering king promised in Scripture. Until this point, Jesus has not been revealing his full identity. When Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, what does Jesus say to Peter? Oh, hold on, don't tell everybody. He commanded them saying, don't tell anybody. The Son of Man must first suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and then on the third day be raised. But here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his identity is no longer a secret. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the eternal heir to the eternal throne of the eternal kingdom and he does it in several ways. First, we see it in Jesus' divine knowledge and control of people and events. This Jesus seems to have the same power of the God of the Old Testament. He can direct the disciples where to go. He knows where a cult's going to be found. He knows how the cult is going to be found. Daryl Bach says it this way, Jesus knows the cult's location, its tied-up state, its unwritten history, what question the owners will ask, and the answer that they will need to hear. I don't know about you, but I enjoy sports, and I enjoy sports predictions. In particular, predictions about Virginia Tech football. Um, because I'm a realistic fan. We talked about fans who aren't realistic a few Sundays ago. But Virginia Tech is not always going to win the national championship. In fact, some years they're going to be quite mediocre because their offense has been inept for a decade. And so, at some point you have to score points. And at some point you're not going to be able to recruit good defenders if you can't score points because who wants to play on that kind of defense? So I, I've made a few predictions about Tech that have been pretty accurate in the past. And, and colleagues at, at my former place of employment down at Southeastern Seminary used to say, how do you how do, you do this? How do you know what's going to happen with Virginia Tech? And the answer is, I watch them religiously. I pay attention. Well the, well, the pundits didn't say that was what was going to happen. They don't watch. They just read what other pundits said and then come up with their conclusion. But, but I had the advantage of a trail of evidence, right, to be able to make a reasonable prediction about what might happen. 
But here's what I couldn't predict. I couldn't predict what play was going to be called on first down every single time Tech had the ball. But here, Jesus, he doesn't just know that he's going to get a colt. He knows every single play that's going to be called, when it's going to be called, and how it's going to be called. Jesus is showing us that he's God. Daryl Bach says this, Jesus' confidence about the animal's availability communicates his control and his knowledge. He's not just son of God, he's son of man, he's king of kings and lord of lords, he is God in the flesh. And can I tell you something for just a moment this morning? We, we could brush by that really quickly. We, we could run right past what is going on in the text, but I want to encourage you to slow down just for a minute and see what Jesus is doing. He, he's born as a baby, he's raised as a man, We're told that he grows in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Get that. God condescends, wraps himself in human flesh, and grows up just like we would. Walks in the power of the Holy Spirit his entire life. Lives a sinless life under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. But here, when the divine plan could get messed up, and we could crown him as king, and somehow have him miss the cross, what does Jesus do? He flexes his divine muscle not to avoid the cross, but to make sure he gets to the cross in exactly the way that we can know that he is who he says he is. Do you see that? He could have turned on his deity to avoid the cross. Instead, he turns it on, if you will, to get to the cross to die for you and for me. And that's not the last time he does it. In chapter 22, he tells Peter and John exactly how to locate the upper room for the Passover. Later in the week, when he's on the cross, Luke writes this, When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You see, Jesus' life is not taken at Calvary. It's given there. He gives his life at Calvary for you and for me. And then in verse 32, just in case we doubt Jesus' predictive powers, just in case we're doubting he is God, look what happens. The disciples go and find it just as he told them. And then in verse 33, the owners ask the exact same question verbatim that Jesus told his disciples to expect. Why are you untying the colt? So we see that Jesus is God simply on his predictive ability and his omniscience and his control of events, but we also see it in light of the biblical background. Did you notice as we read through this text all the Old Testament references that we we saw? In verse 28, Jesus is the king who, like King David, goes up to Jerusalem to establish his reign. In verse 29, in verse 37, we see mentioned the Mount of Olives, which is the place that he will remain until he is arrested at Gethsemane. Zechariah chapter 14, 4 and 5 describes the Mount of Olives as the place of Jesus' triumph. And Luke wants us to see that Jesus is associating himself with the place of triumph even before he gets to the cross. So the way we welcome Jesus is we see that he is the Jesus that was promised in the Old Testament. And if his triumph comes by way of a cross, our triumph in Christ comes by the way of denying ourselves and giving ourselves over to his mission and his plan to the ends of the earth. Jesus' biblical identity is so important that it's twice said in verse 31 and verse 34. 
It's twice said of Jesus that he needs a colt. Did you see that? He has need of it. Now, how, how can it be said that Jesus has need of anything? He's Jesus. He can cause the dead to rise. He can make bread out of nothing. He can cause sons of Abraham to rise up from stones. But he has need of a colt. Why does he need the colt? He needs the colt because he wants you to be able to trust in him with confidence that he's the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Moses, back in chapter 49 of Genesis, says this, The scepter, the implement of his rule, will not depart from Judah, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. All the way back in the first book of the Bible, the prophet Moses tells us, Look for a king who's going to come through the line of Judah, who's going to ride his colt to his death. And guess what? By his death, our wounds will be healed. Our sins will be erased. Because he allows himself to be draped in his own blood, we can be washed in it and our sins can be forgiven. The Je Jesus is the king who's promised in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 says something similar. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. But just in case we've missed what God has so plainly said would happen in Genesis all the way through the minor prophets, look what Luke records for us in verse 38. He records for us the praise of the disciples who are quoting from Psalm 118 verse 26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what do the disciples say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples get it. The disciples don't understand how his authority and his rule and his reign and his righteousness will be established. But they understand this is the righteous king that we've been waiting for. And if this is the righteous king we've been waiting for, we will declare that he is the king. We will worship him as king and we will recognize that he comes in the name. That means the power and the authority of the God who sent him. We too then worship and welcome this king who is king of kings and lord of lords. Daryl Bach summarizes the biblical imagery in this passage in this way. When one puts the regal confession of the disciples next to the imagery of the end times, that is the cult and the olives, a messianic claim is present. The Messiah King has come, and He is about to conquer all that opposes us by going to the cross. First, North Roanoke this morning, we must welcome the King into our lives, our homes, our families, and our church by recognizing that he, is, he has come, and He has come just as God promised He would. But secondly, to welcome Jesus as King, we must obey Him completely. We must obey Him completely. To recognize Jesus as King doesn't just mean to, to say, Oh, great, He's King. Good job. Go, God. You're King. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Do you see what the, the authority and the kingship of Jesus produces in the disciples? It produces meticulous and full obedience. We know that Jesus is God in part because the disciples obeyed exactly what Jesus told them to do. And because they went and found exactly what Jesus said they would find, we can go, wow, 
Jesus is God. He is King of Kings. And you know what? The same is true today. As North Roanoke Baptist Church purposes to obey the Great Commission and to live our lives humbly, lowly, so that others might know that Jesus is worth it all, that he paid it all, that he died for them. As we go in his authority and obey in Jesus' name, Jesus gets the victory and his kingdom is expanded and extended. It is through our humble obedience, just as our Lord humbly obeyed to the cross, that the nations are one to him. Jesus says in verse 30, go, find, and untie, and bring. And then in verses 31, 32, and 35, we see the exact same words. The disciples went, found, untied, and brought the colt. North Roanoke Baptist Church, let's not overlook what God does to expand and extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth through the humble, meticulous, full, and faithful obedience of his disciples. He's winning the nations as we take the low place for one another and as we take the low place for the nations all around us who've yet to hear that Jesus is king and Jesus saves. Frank Thielman said it this way, God has left us here to play a critical part of God's purpose to bring salvation to the world. When we obey the king, the eyes of others are opened to behold his regal splendor and enter into his kingdom. North Roanoke, let's resolve this day, this morning, that we will never underestimate the power of King Jesus to work through our trusting obedience to prepare prepare others to know that he is king. So if we're going to welcome king, we've got to see that he's the king promised in scripture. We've got to obey him meticulously, fully. And thirdly, we must worship him heartily. Look look at Luke's gospel at the response of the disciples in verses 35 and following. In verse 35, they throw their garments on the colt and they set Jesus on it. In first century terms, they give Jesus the royal treatment. They, They set him apart. Now here's a question for us this morning. Are you giving Jesus the royal treatment in your life? Are you laying down your garments for the sake of the king? Are you willing to part way with whatever it is that you're hanging on to so that the king Jesus can be set apart in your life as the king that he is? When is the last time That you deliberately, consciously, prayerfully set Jesus apart as the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. Said, I want my whole day, I want my whole week, I want my marriage, I want everything that, that involves living in this world to be consecrated and dedicated and given over to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, they continue in verse 36, that is, the multitude of the disciples throw their garments on the road. Just like they did when Jehu was anointed king all the way back in 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu, by the way, was anointed king specifically for the purposes of conquering the enemy of God's people. And the disciples recognize, though they don't understand how it's going to happen, they know Jesus is coming to kick the backside of the enemy of the people of God. He is going to defeat death. He's going to defeat sin and Satan and self-righteousness. And he's about ready to do it. And the disciples know that, and they praise him for it. 
And Jesus receives the praise and he receives the worship because that's exactly what he's doing. Verse 37, Jesus begins to move down the mountain and seemingly toward Jerusalem. And the expectation reaches a fever pitch. And the disciples begin to praise God joyfully. The word is written in such a way that it means their praises just kept on coming. Did you know when we exit this morning, in just a few moments, that you don't have to stop praising God? You can keep worshiping Him as King. You can keep declaring that He's King of kings and Lord of lords. You can keep welcoming Him into your life. They, by the way, worshiped with a loud voice. It's okay to have loud worship from time to time. Do you know that? With a loud voice. And why did they do it? They did it for the miracles, literally the works of power that they had seen. Now, I, some of us get a little upset. We say, well, the disciples got to see all those miracles. What do we get to see? I, if God would show me a miracle, then maybe I could get excited like the disciples do. But until I get to see a miracle, then I'm not going to be excited. Well, let me tell you about a miracle. There's a little seven-year-old boy whose dad was a preacher who had every reason to grow up and live a self-righteous life thinking that because of all that I did and all the good stuff that I did that I could somehow be right before God. But one day when I was sitting in a worship service at the end of a pew, inexplicably, God began to speak to my heart. And I can't explain it to you, but I also can't deny it. That the Spirit of God began to say to Daniel, you can't justify yourself. You can't be, ever be good enough for God. You're a sinner just like everybody else. It doesn't matter who your dad is, who your mom is, how you were raised. You are a sinner. And the Spirit of God came on me and in me and transformed my heart in an instance and gave me saving faith. And I ran forward and said, I need to trust Jesus. Let me tell you something. There's no greater miracle than the miracle of conversion. And God has poured out His Spirit that we could go in Jesus' name and see the nations converted and won to Him and made citizens of His kingdom. We don't need to look around for more miracles. We are the miracle that Christ secured at Calvary's cross. Their praise is grounded in what truth? In the truth that He came in the name of the Lord, in His power, in His authority. And because Jesus came and did exactly what He was commissioned to do, there's, get this, verse 38, peace in heaven. Think about that. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> when is there ever not peace in heaven? Well, perhaps when God the Son left heaven to be born as a baby. And Luke records for us, when the baby came, there was peace on earth. But when the baby is finished with his mission and he's going to a cross, there's peace in the heavens. Because the prince of heaven, the darling of heaven, who's going to be crucified, is coming back. Where he's going to establish his reign and his rule and his righteousness. And he's going to use his church to do it. There's even peace in heaven. And glory to God in the highest. The disciples' praise of the selfless king. Of course, we can't end the story there, can we? <laughs> That'd be a great end to Palm Sunday. The king came. The disciples recognized the king had, came, had come. Next section of the gospel. But no. There had to be some Pharisees in the crowd. You know, no matter where you go, there's always some Pharisees. There's always some people that get upset about something. 
Because it wasn't just so. And you know, you know what will identify the Pharisees faster than anything in your midst? Real worship. When you really start to just give Jesus the praise and not care about getting any of the credit, when you really start to turn your heart's affection and attention to just declaring who the king is, who the one who came in the, nor- in the name of the Lord is, who's commissioning us and sending us in his name to the ends of the earth, when that becomes your orientation, and when we begin to give him the praise and the worship, the Pharisees sort of self-identify and they check out eventually. There's nothing like white, hot worship of the king of kings to ferret out the self-righteous in the church. And we're going to be a church, North Roanoke Baptist Church, that welcomes the king, the king who was promised in the Old Testament. We're going to be a church that welcomes the king by obeying him and taking up our cross and following after him, knowing that that is the way his kingdom advances. And we're going to be a church, North Roanoke Baptist Church, who unapologetically gives him and him alone all the praise and the glory and honor, trusting that as we do that, his kingdom will expand in ways seen and unseen. We won't see it all until he comes again, but we go in confidence that our king has come and we welcome the king to reign and to rule in this family of faith, North Roanoke Baptist Church. Would you join me as we welcome the king? Let's pray. Our God and Father, We love you. We love you because you first loved us and you sent a king who didn't deserve the cross to a cross in order that we could be reconciled. And not just that we could be reconciled, but that we could be made new and that we could be enlisted as citizens of heaven right now, seated in the heavenlies, living and Breathing and working and serving and sharing with full confidence that your kingdom will indeed come and is now coming on earth as it is in heaven as you move through your church to bring glory and honor to Christ. God, this morning, I don't know. I don't know the spiritual status of the people before me. I don't know whether we've got some Pharisees or some new believers or some longtime believers or some people who are right on the fence. And God, you're about ready to do the miracle of conversion in their life. Spirit of God, we welcome you in this place and we ask that you would do it now. That you would birth new children into the kingdom of God. For the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen. This morning as we sing, we invite you to come. Maybe you need to trust Christ. No no better day than Palm Sunday to do that, to welcome the King into your life for the first time. For some of you, you're looking for a church. You moved here from out of town. You want to join North Roanoke's family of faith, and you want to welcome the King with us Sunday after Sunday, week after week. We invite you to come and join North Roanoke's family of faith. Some of you, you're believers, you're members, and you just realize, you know what? I haven't been welcoming the King in my life. I've been trying to take the exalted place and not the low place. And I want to get back to giving my life over to Christ so that others can know Him. So no matter where you are this morning, we invite you to come as we sing. 